Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. All right. I don't know uh, how things are going where you live in terms of plans for school reopenings, but I'm going to describe it as a moving target uh, pretty much across the country. Certainly a moving target where I live. And depending on whether or not your children are enrolled in public or private schools, uh, a moving target yet again. Um, And so for those of us who are working and have school-aged children of one variety or another, particularly those who have special needs kids, um, the challenges are many, 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 many. And even those of us who uh, have school districts who are planning to return in a hybrid model, you know, the challenge is um, how do you adjust your work schedule to accommodate a child who's going to be in school sometimes but not all times? And, um, yeah, it's it's a challenge. Well, if you think it's a challenge... Um, Let me just go ahead and say that that is multiplied, amplified, if you happen to be a person of color. So I want to share with you some new new survey results of parents whose child normally attends school. So this is a a survey um, completed by Axios between July 14th and 19th of this year. And the share of parents who are concerned um, about different issues related to schools reopening in person has a lot of uh, racial inequity uh, in terms of the answers. And so depending on the color of your skin or whether or not your child is a person of color um, was in was influential in how you answered the questions. So let me just uh, read sort of the, the top line takeaway of this um, Axios uh, piece. Racial inequality is the defining feature, not only of the pandemic in terms of health impact and economic effect, uh, but also true when it comes to education. Children of color are more likely to fall behind the longer they stay home or out of school, particularly because of limited access to virtual education. Parents of color are also more worried than white parents about losing the other benefits that are provided to children when they are in school, like social services and food. This is all according to a recent poll done by the Kaiser Family Foundation reported on today by Axios. Only 9% of white parents are worried about their children having enough to eat at home if schools remain closed, compared with 44% of parents of color. For those of us who are concerned about justice and equality and concerned about kids and their welfare, um, this has to be of concern to us. Uh, and so how is how are you personally um, responding to the challenges that families in your own community are facing? How is your church responding? How might churches respond if schools do not reopen in person? Um, we've got some creative solutions being implemented at churches across the country who are reopening their campuses. If, uh, if schools in their district are not reopening, they are reopening their campuses uh, and providing uh, background-checked 
like right safe people who are going to be on those campuses to uh, to be there and they're going to be sure that kids get fed and have backpacks full of food to take home um, and on and on and on. So how is your church thinking creatively about being uh, a good a good partner to people in your community who may find themselves in particular need if schools do not reopen? Kids need to be supervised. They need a safe place to be. They need access to the Internet in order to um, actually take advantage of the distance learning that is going to be offered through many school districts across the, across the country. Thought it would be good to talk with a public school teacher. I have a really good friend named Susan Mattingly, who is a part of the public school system in Detroit, Michigan. And, and let me just set it up this way. Susan Mattingly is the one woman I would want next to me in pretty much any place or circumstance in life. She's my friend. She's my sister in Christ. She's a public school teacher. She's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, Susan Mattingly, um, you can follow her on social media, but really, I just encourage you to listen to what she has to say. Um, My friend Susan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So um, I know about uh, the kids with whom you serve, but our listeners do not. So I just want to allow you to introduce us this morning um, to the young people with whom you serve in the Detroit public school system? Sure. So I I have a really diverse population at my school. We're uh, more than 40% Hispanic. We're about 40%, maybe 30% African-American, and then uh, just mixed and white kids for the rest of the demographic. 85% were qualifying for free and reduced lunch. So we went ahead and got a grant. And we just do free breakfast and free lunch for everybody. We provide a health care clinic and all sorts of social services for our students because it's a it's a needy population. So do you have any sense of how um, the students who you in particular work with, um, because I know that even in the midst of your school, the students who you uh, personally work with, um, tend to have some additional challenges. Um, do you have any sense of how they have fared during the school shutdown? It's been difficult. We know one of the stats we saw was that 90% or 80% of the calls to Child Protective Services have disappeared because there isn't a school making it. So there are kids in a pressure cooker somewhere that we can't find or identify. We've had families where a parent has died from the COVID or we've had a child die from COVID. So there's just that sort of stress and impact as well. And then if you think about that demographic of people, lots and lots of them are essential workers. So we have Tons of kids who maybe don't have adequate child care provided for them, aren't necessarily food secure, definitely benefiting from the lack of evictions at the moment. There's just the stress for me is high. 
the stress for them is enormous. Talk with us about, um, you know, let's just take take us into the life of one student, maybe a student who is also a parent. I know that is part of the population that um, that you serve. So, you know, I'm a um, what? I'm a 16 year old. Um, I have a child. I have to work. Um, I am responsible financially, um, not only for the welfare of my own child, but for myself. Um, I don't have parental support of my own. Um, and, and I've been told, you know, to keep up with schoolwork, you know, I need to be online between these hours every day. How do I even access that kind of, uh, of learning? Uh, So in reality, you probably don't, or you hope that things are recorded so you can watch later. If if you're that student, you most likely work at either a restaurant and you've been laid off, or you work at CVS or a grocery store or a Rite Aid sort of business where you're essential and you're going in not just regular hours, but extra hours. So what little time you were having with your child is now evaporated and whatever money you had, you're now spending on childcare because your, your kid is not in school. So you probably have dropped internet. Yeah. Because you can't afford it. You can't pay for that. I mean, how are you going to pay for that? Yeah. Right. Um, Spend a dollar once. (laughs) Yeah. You can only spend a dollar once. Amen. Um, I want to talk with you about an article that um, that caught my attention and I sent to you about math and predictive policing. And you, when uh, when my producer, Paul, said, you know, who do we know out there that's a math person? I said, Susan Mattingly <laughs> is a math person and she's a teacher. And um, uh, and frankly, she knows how to live her life in such a way that um, people. Res- I, I mean, let me describe you this way, Susan. People people have a healthy level of respect for you because of the way you don't just spiritually and emotionally and verbally carry yourself, but because of the way you physically carry yourself. And so um, I, I would love for you to, when we come back from the break, um, just reflect on, on the intersection of love and respect. And I'm going to use the word fear, but it's more like awe, the awe kind of fear, um, because you have cultivated a way of engaging as a white woman in a world that is very diverse among people who are, um, you know, very different in life experience than many of us. And I'd just love for you to reflect on that for a moment. And then I want to talk with you about uh, math and predictive policing, which is apparently a conversation that people are having that um, I think uh, we all need to know a little bit more about. I'm talking with professor, teacher, Susan Mattingly, she's also, I don't know, deadlift, deadlifter? Is that the, what is the sport that you're engaged in that I'm supposed to know more about? Powerlifting. Yeah. Powerlifting. So a... She's a powerlifter. <laughs> I know, which says, you see, now there are some of you are like nodding knowingly. All right, Susan Mattingly and I will be right back. Elementary, my dear, two times two is four. Elementary, my dear, two times three is six. Elementary, my dear. Talking with Susan Mattingly, uh, we, we we could talk about powerlifting, but instead, I'd love for you to talk about what I would just describe as like this thin line between love, respect, uh, and and fear, kind of awe, awesome fear. It, 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 as you engage with 
all kinds of people because you are very adept at this. And this is something that every single one of us needs to cultivate a greater um, ability in, in terms of just our conversations with people who are different than we are. Yeah, you know, I think really for me, it comes from knowing Jesus. As funny as that sounds, and I know powerlifting is awesome and deadlifting 400 pounds helps. But for me, it comes from Jesus, just this idea that all people are people first and all people were created by God. So I always lead with the idea that whatever situation I'm in, whoever I'm talking to, whatever's going on, I'm talking to a child of God. And that just genuineness is picked up by the other person. Mm -hmm. And I rarely have problems. <laughs> it helps. I know. I don't. Part of it. No, I know. I mean, people do. They respond to you because you, um, you have this, this affect um, that is people know they're loved by you. And, and and they take you seriously because you're a serious person, but you're also full of joy um, and you like to laugh and at yourself, among others. Um, so anyway, I just right. uh, I, I, I think that it's helpful for people to know other people who um, who are engaged in the world in a way that models how Christ engaged with people. And you're one of those. And so I just I want more people to know you and and to be like you. So there you go. Um, let's talk about math and predictive policing. Assume that I am not good at math. And I don't know what predictive policing is, so I'm just going to let you set this up. Sure. So predictive policing is writing a computer program that takes a bunch of data and crunches it around and spits out probability. We've seen in the past couple of years that this particular spot has problems at 2 in the morning, so we're going to predict that in general, on whatever night of the week, that spot has a problem at two in the morning. And best case scenario, you'd use really great data and limit it to useful things to know without any bias, and you would be able to have a good model to send police to the right place and it would reduce policing costs. And math is essential because those computer programs and those algorithms and all of that data are very math dependent. Now, math feels like um, it's an unbiased, right? right. Math, feel, math feels unbiased to me. So right. it's an How could it possibly be biased? <laughs> okay. So, so help us understand then how the math becomes biased because the conversation that is being had um, about police departments in, in some of the U.S.'s largest cities experimenting with predictive policing as a way to forecast criminal activity and therefore, you know, determine where their limited resources are going to be deployed Um seeking to keep people as safe as possible, right, in the midst of a fallen world among broken people. Like, right, that's the reality we're living in. And so how does the math become biased, or is it not the math that becomes biased but something else? So it's it's not really the math. An algorithm will do what you ask an algorithm to do. 
But people have asked the algorithms to do something. Mm-hmm. And people are biased. And even if you don't have an explicit bias, there's implicit bias. Right? So it's easy to say, I, oh, I'm not at all prejudiced against anybody, and I'm certainly not a racist. But to be very nervous walking by yourself in the dark coming across a particular group of people and having to talk yourself down from that. So in the policing world where you see some problems happening are twofold. One is in the type of data you use. So there's a difference between sort of violent crimes and nuisance crimes. And if you include all the data, all the everybody who got stopped for possession, everybody who was smoking a blunt that day, you're going to pull the data in a way that says all those people, and it sounds like those people are a problem. And now you've confirmed in a police officer's mind that what they thought all along about those people being a problem is now true. And it's it turns out it's not necessarily even a racial bias so much as a social and economic bias towards poor people. And it might not it, it might not come as a surprise to any of us that um like let's just say particularly theft might right might be higher in um, in communities where people are living at a level of poverty where they can't afford to buy what they need. Correct. Okay. So um, so some of us, this should not surprise us. The conversation um, gets into uh, 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 protection of people related to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, um, requiring uh, reasonable suspicion in order for a police officer to stop someone and conduct uh, a search. And so that's really, you know, I think ultimately what this comes down to, those kinds of conversations. Um, and and the introduction of AI into all of this um, is, is now, I think, where we find ourselves. Um, artificial intelligence is, is sort of the, the newest wave upon us. Um, and then I think we are also now talking about the ways in which um, people are recognized through facial recognition software that's operational in places and spaces and at a level that really, I think, would surprise most people listening right now. Um, yeah. Susan, any um, any walk-off thoughts on this as we, uh, you and I have to conclude our conversation today? Um, just your thoughts uh, on policing right now and the reforms that uh, are being sought maybe in your city, but certainly across the country. Yeah, I think the move toward community policing and knowing your people better gets you back to this idea of of Christ, of leading with people or people first and getting to know the people and then dealing with the needs and then fixing. Right? There was a, there was a real pattern set up by Christ as we read through scriptures and I think that that's a the model that we have in the world for that is called community policing. <laughs> and I think that would be great for people to sort of think about how their community could embrace. 
And then um, one final question. Um, what's a, This is from a listener um, who wants to know, what's a really tangible way that someone like me could help someone like Susan or her students in, in public schools right now? Oh, great question. So one way is if you're working in a, in a church, like I appreciated hearing your story of people around you with backpacks at churches for people with food. I was really wondering about whether churches could open spaces for essential worker kids and provide childcare for, or schooling, not schooling, but internet for the kids of essential workers. And on a more sort of micro level, in your neighborhood, are there people you know who would benefit from reaching out and saying, hey, can do you want your kids to come over on Wednesdays? Because I know you have to go to work and I'm working from home so I can help them that way. All right. I want to um, I want to offer um, those of you who are listening and interested in this. There is an article posted at religionnews.com entitled Schools May Not Reopen to Students This Fall, But Churches Might for Remote Learning. Um, it is the place where I this caught my attention in terms of churches across the country who are opening their campuses in ways that Susan is describing. Uh, churches opening spaces for kids of essential workers and or simply providing a safe space for kids on those days when their school is not open, but they are required to access remote learning and churches providing not only the the distance, uh, social distancing, but also the Internet access that kids need, um, as well as safe supervision. So there you go. It's at religionnews.com. Schools may may open. Um, schools may not open to students this fall, but churches might. Susan Mattingly, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks. I miss you. What a joy. We'll talk soon. We'll be right back. All right. Taking a deep breath now. We're going to pivot to um, a conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. We've got, uh, you know, Christians facing challenges uh, around the world, people facing challenges around the world, um, and how we as Christians engage in those conversations, particularly related to uh, ministries that are active in places where you and I will never uh, set foot. So uh, next up, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. We'll be right back. Ever tried to teach a frog to fly? Well, good luck. It doesn't usually end very well. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Sometimes parents have goals and dreams for their children that don't quite match what the kids were made for. It's like mom and dad are dealing with the frog. They keep trying to make him fly. Well, as much as they coach, lecture, prod, and force him to practice, that frog will never sprout wings. Instead of trying to turn your frog into a mediocre bird, work at something he'll enjoy and something that'll ensure his success. Mom, Dad, let go of some of that self-induced stress. Reevaluate what your teen is created to do. Then become his biggest fan. Mark Gregston is hosting a virtual Families in Crisis retreat on Zoom the weekend beginning Thursday night, July 30th. To register, go to FamilyCrisisRetreat.com. 
now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find everything we're talking about today at mnnonline.org. Ruth, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I am well. I am well. Are you well? I'm upright and all of my limbs are still attached. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. All right. Let's talk about um, Maui. First of all, uh, I think maybe we need a reminder of geography here. The globe is big, and sometimes we refer to places that um, people think they know something about, but in reality, we don't even really know on the map where that is. So uh, remind us where Mali is, and then tell us why we're talking about it today. Okay, so it's in West Africa. Um, And when you consider the area, the region of um, West Africa and and what's happening there, um, everything connects to everything else. So something that would be disruptive in Mali could potentially have huge disruptive impact on all the the neighboring states or the neighboring countries uh, around there. So when you're dealing with uh, the type of unrest that we're seeing in that country, it is no wonder that you have now 15 countries that are coming in to try to help Mali solve its uh, its political crisis. Excuse me, the political crisis. Um, The situation there is, is it started over an elective issue. Um, and I guess it, we'd even have to go back a little bit further to figure out why the election is so contentious to begin with. But uh, first you've got an issue of disputed elections and then you have Islamist violence because in the region where you have um, um, central Mali and some of those areas, you you have a hotbed of um, – Islamist violence. So you have an area that is very um, friendly to like Al-Qaeda. You have a lot of the jihadists, the Tuareg uh, rebels that are part of that as well. And when you have Mali unstabilized, then you risk that spilling over into the neighboring countries. Um, So again, when you had this issue with the elections back in April, That was fine. People were happy with the election results and they were going to move forward. But then at the end of the month, the constitutional court threw out the the election results. And basically that put the power of parliament in the president's party. And that's what upset people because they said, these are our democratically elected leaders. Why are you basically undermining the the democratic process and, and taking away our voice? So you had an issue of corruption, you had an issue of economic hardship on, on top of everything else, and then you had, you know, the, the pandemic issues. Um, so that led to uh, widespread protests that came in waves throughout June. And they initially were peaceful protests, as they usually are. They start out peaceful, and then they move into something else. Uh, they got violent. People did die. And um, right now what you have is just mass chaos in Mali. Uh, so the leaders of the uh, ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States, came together and said, OK, we're going to send a small delegation to try to help you figure out your solution. Um, we're going to try to encourage you toward uh, finding some kind of um, measure that will basically put an end to the situation. And there were five countries that were involved with that initial uh, situation as of last Friday. But they came out of the meetings on Friday and said, we, we didn't make any headway at all. So Monday, you had 15 countries from ECOWAS come in and, and sit down with Mali and try to figure out a solution. What they're trying to do is encourage 
uh, a unity government and then uh, get the opposition leader released from jail. He was he was actually kidnapped. And so he's been kind of missing. Nobody really knows where he is. Um, somebody knows where he is. But officially, the answer is we don't know what happened to him. And so ECOWAS is saying, well, whoever does know who he is, they need to release him because this is going to be the first step towards trying to put things back together. Uh, and move towards a unity government. And then those elected leaders that were booted, they were replaced by people in the president's party. So ECOWAS is saying, let's get those 31 officials to step down out of parliament. And then we're going to have another set of elections and we'll put those duly elected leaders into that, uh, into those parliament places that are, have been vacated by the president's party. That's what they're trying to do. They haven't made a lot of progress. They're going to spend all week hammering out the details this week. So that's the kind of the the nature of what's happening in Mali. And again, you know, we, we're trying to stress the the importance here as we talk to our partners from Open Doors and Transold Radio. They're very concerned about what could happen if uh, Mali continues to destabilize because um, you have so many issues uh, with with the the borders. And um, if if Mali is becomes a failed state, uh, what you have is porous borders where you have terrorists that are moving into other countries and beyond. And this has been an issue that's probably come into the forefront since um, probably 10 years ago. And it's just been growing in in scope ever since then. So the government has a lot of of challenges ahead. And while this is all happening, of course, with chaos and and people being very upset and really not knowing if they can trust anything or anyone, they are looking for something that is um, that is going to be the same, a standard that remains the same. They are looking for hope. And Transworld Radio has been uh, putting out a lot of broadcasts that are just dealing with some of the issues without getting political. I think that's what's really tricky. And, and what's what these these partners are so masterful at is they, they bring in um, a way to look at a situation from a different worldview. And it allows them to speak into the situation to allow people to admit their fear and not be political. Um, they're so good at this. And and so we just need to be continue to pray, uh, be praying for our partners that are in, involved with this kind of stuff. Open Doors has a whole network of churches and ministries that are still trying to continue um, uh, taking the hope of the gospel to people. And as we see these situations go back and forth, it limits sometimes what they're able to do just because with people, the passions stirred up so much. Um, sometimes you really can't get out and do as much as you were going to do. So creative wisdom to continue to do ministry um, and and be praying because the believers in Mali are just asking God to take hold of the situation and um, that they would be able and willing to work through whatever solutions come out. Mm-hmm. All right, let me just remind our listeners, Mali is the seventh largest country uh, on the continent of Africa. Uh, it has lots of borders, Algeria to the north, Niger to the east, Burkina Faso, uh, and the Ivory Coast to the south, Guinea in the southwest, Senegal and Mauritania uh, in the west. Um, a failed state in this uh, in this situation um, would be tragic beyond description. Um, and so let us be praying in all the ways that Ruth uh, has invited us to. Ruth, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I know that um, that the Barna, um, which you know everybody knows, is really reliable. Um, research. Uh, Barna Research has issued a study 
um, on sort of the views that American Christians have related to missions. Part of that conversation is about missions. And um, depends. it really depends on your age. And those under 35 have a very, very different view of the ethics of missions. And so I want to talk with you about that when we return. I'm talking with Ruth Kramer. Uh, you can find everything we're talking about today at Mission Network News, which is mnnonline.org. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News, you can actually find the article we're going to discuss now at mnnonline.org. Um, Ruth, tell us about this Barna research and whether or not I view missions, uh, particularly past missions, as ethical, depending on my age. Well, let's. I want to first say that this new Barna research is is a huge, extensive study, and our article touches on one aspect of something that they brought up. Um, and so, I you know, I want to say, if you're interested in this this topic, go to click the link and actually go through the study because there's a lot of information there, um, and we're only focusing on one aspect of it. But basically, they're saying that the next gen feels that missions is really important that they are 100% behind it, but they just question how it's been done. And so our story explores that a little bit more because really what they're saying is um, the, the younger generation, age 35 and under, has is troubled by what they see as an unethical approach to missions, um, whether that's the colonial aspect or the imperialistic aspect, um, just because there was too much interference with culture and there wasn't enough um, foundation with with relationship and and some of the other things and that led to other setbacks at different points. Um, so there was there were you know there we we are all familiar probably with the history of things that happen in in the great you know length of missions in which our countries have been involved um, and and the mistakes that were made um, and and the, the the challenges that we saw and and the creative ways that uh, God moved through that in spite of the mistakes that were made. Um, so what we're really looking at is uh, how do we move forward from here? We we spoke with Transworld Radio's John Fugler, who is a member of the Alliance for the Unreached along with Mission Network News, and we wanted to talk through this. How do we process some of this information? And instead of looking at that as a criticism of, you know, looking at uh, the mistakes that we've made in, in the past as um, – we, as a body of Christ, tried to take the gospel to the unreached. Um, what he says is that the younger generation is really just challenging us to think a little bit more creatively and contextually. And that's good because it sets the bar higher for those of us who are working in missions. Um, and we want to include the younger generation uh, with the decisions that are made and how we move forward from this point, um, making the message accessible to people uh, and 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 really taking it to them in their mother tongue and their heart languages and um, letting them see the hope of the gospel through their own eyes instead of through someone else's lenses. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we were talking about is uh, the Alliance for the Unreached and the International Day for the Unreached. Um, one of the sticking points is the unreached and who they are. And uh, we did some research uh, with that, just trying to figure out a little bit more how to make that message a little bit more accessible to the body of Christ in North America. And one of the issues is that people just don't connect with the word unreached anymore. 
Mm. So how do we change that message? Uh, and so the Alliance for the Unreached is is changing a few things. We're, we're kind of rolling a few things out on our new banner, uh, which is a third of us. And that really is the talking point because it, what it says is there's a third of us in the world who have no access to a body of Christ, no access to Christians, no access to the Word of God. That's a lot of people. And that's this that's the the opening gambit, I guess, to a discussion on how do we become part of the solution when you look at a third of us who are going to go to eternity without any hope of of relationship with our creator um, and what we can do about that. So that's what John, John Fugler is saying is that we can look at this research and the observations from a younger generation and learn from each other build on the strengths that we have and move forward together. It, just be willing to have that discussion um, and then ask God for wisdom. That's this is the whole thing is about asking God for wisdom. Mm, I love that. All right, I've written down a third of us uh, because that's a staggering um, staggering reality if we would allow ourselves to to consider it for even a moment. Ruth, let's talk about um, one more topic before uh, before we have to go. Um, Talk with us about Mecca and um, and the Hajj, which started yesterday. Right. So the Hajj is one of the big things, one of the five pillars of Islam and the faith. Um, it is required of all Muslims to do this at least once in their life. It is a pilgrimage where they go to Mecca and then they hit these different uh, stations uh, as part of that pilgrimage. And um, it, it is uh, something that every Muslim in the world uh, – aspires to do, to complete. Um, this year, because of the COVID-19 issue, that has really turned that on its head. And instead of two and a half million people going to Mecca, which you could imagine would be quite a disaster given the, the state of the pandemic, uh, Saudi Arabia basically cut the cut the um, participation down to a thousand people. And those thousand people live in Saudi Arabia. So if you don't mm. live in Saudi Arabia, if you're not in the area, if you're not a resident, you can't prove that, you're not going to be allowed in. Um, so, you know, what we're looking at is a lot of disappointed Muslims and a lot of people who have a lot of questions as a result of the decisions um, that have been made here because it's it's a supposed to be one of the pillars of the faith. And uh, it's turned into a political situation. It's turned into a, something else that's being governed by uh, people instead of by the spiritual journey that it's supposed to be. So, you know, some of our partners uh, that we've been talking to, Frontiers is a, is a good organization that we've been talking to, and their ministry focuses on Muslims. We've got another ministry that is uh, Uncharted Ministries, where they're, they're helping us figure out how to have relationships uh, with people in this community so that we can present them the hope of Jesus Christ and and who that is, what that means is a paradigm shift for a lot of people. And as they're looking at the Hajj, they're encouraging us as believers to be praying because this is a wonderful time for Muslims to meet Jesus Christ. There, you know, we, we talk about this a lot during um, Ramadan as well, where they're seeking some kind of relationship or some kind of answer from God. And so we pray during that time, uh, during the 30 days of Ramadan, that God would reveal himself, that Jesus would reveal himself in dreams and visions. And we hear this over and over and over. The same is true of the Hajj, since there are going to be so many people who are seeking some kind of spiritual connection and they're seeking God, they're seeking the face of God to ask God to reveal himself through um, 
through dreams and visions, whether that that is the traditional way or whether that is maybe through content that's available now on the Internet, um, through a Bible that somehow gets into their hands or, um, you know, any other kind of avenue where you can have a touch point and bring the hope of Jesus Christ and a different a paradigm shift to what they've ever known uh, about their spiritual um, welfare um, into, into the, the discussion. Um, so be praying for ministries that are doing this, be praying for opportunities. You may know Muslims in your community and they may be expressing frustration and disappointment. Um, look for those opportunities to encourage and engage Muslims in your friend groups and neighborhoods and ask God to give believers wisdom and strength as, as they worship, uh, through this, this time and, um, and pray for opportunity. Ruth Kramer, thank you as always for joining us. Uh, If you are interested in reading anything that we have talked about today, you can do so at mnnonline.org. That's Mission Network News. Ruth, thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll be right back. I think it was just last week um, that we talked about Lebanon. Uh, Let me just highlight for you uh, as a prayer concern, the nation of Lebanon again, um, Save the Children is reporting that they have the expect now they now have the expectation that a million children are going to starve to death by the end of the year in the nation of Lebanon. And so um, let's be uh, let's be praying and let's be figuring out how to activate ourselves in a world of so much prosperity for people in such desperate. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.